A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. I have John Warlow here with me today. Good morning, John. How are you? Good. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. No problem. John is the author of, uh, of multiple books, all, all good ones. Uh, the first one was uh, uh, Built to Sell. The second is The Automatic Customer. And the newest one, The Art of Selling Your Business. Uh, obviously, we're starting to see a little bit of a, a trend here. Uh, you've become an expert through the years in helping companies. Um, I don't know if I'll say this right, but helping companies really maximize their valuation and get their companies ready for sale. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's that's our niche is helping helping entrepreneurs build up the value of their company leading up to an exit. Yeah. 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 And, 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 you know, in today's day and age, I mean, I, you know, I work with a lot of clients who one of their, one of their goals is, is ultimately to sell their company. There may be small to middle size, you know, entrepreneurs, um, sometimes even the bigger companies as well. And more than anything else, whether they want to sell or not, they want to get as much value out of their company. Um, and so, you know, that's something you have developed a great expertise in. Um, I think one of the better people known for this out there. Um, having said that, though, you know, the audience, we may have many who've not heard your name before. Um, and you maybe share your path, share your story. How did you how did you get here and how did you become an expert at this? Man, you know, I, I've been involved, I guess, in four startups, four companies that I've started uh, and exited and learned all or through lots of trial and error, what was driving the value of those companies and what ultimately drove the value and started to try to put some of those thoughts into a book called Built to Sell all the way back in 2011, which was about how do you create a business that can thrive without you? Uh, and I followed up that with uh, the automatic customer you mentioned in the introduction, which is about recurring revenue and how it accelerates the value of a company. And then I guess a month ago, I just launched a new book called The Art of Selling Your Business. So that's been the, the journey in, in, uh, in a nutshell. Very good. And so, so the new book, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about it. I mean, and, and, and actually feel free to tell us about all three of them, but, but obviously the new one's the one that we've got a great curiosity about. So um, what, what does it bring to the listeners? Yeah. I mean, you know, I've, I've been doing this podcast called Built to Sell Radio, I guess, for the better part of five years. And I've interviewed a different entrepreneur every week for five straight years. And what I've, what I, what I asked them about is their exit. What, you know, what did you learn from it? What mistakes did you make? And one of the things that I've noticed is that most of my guests exit at a pretty typical industry average multiple, uh, you know, three, four, five times EBITDA. Then there's this other cohort of my guests that seem to punch well above their weight when it comes to exiting. Yeah. And I got kind of curious about these folks and what they were doing differently. And that's what led me to try to analyze what these folks who seem to punch well above their weight are doing. And that's really the, the, the kind of journey I started and, and ultimately led to me writing The Art of Selling Your Business, I, it, where it's really designed as a bit of a, a, a playbook or a, a guidebook as to how to punch above your weight. You know, I, I, remind, I just did a podcast, it went live last week with a guy named Greg Alexander who built a consulting business. They 
you know, for the beginning, most consulting businesses trade at about one times revenue. That's a pretty classic multiple for a consultant, maybe one and a half if, if it's got some unique IP, whatever. Sure, sure. And Greg's built his business up to $30 million of annual revenue when he sold it recently for $162 million. So, like six times top line, five to six times top line revenue. Again, no basis on what would be the typical valuation for a consulting business. So it, it's just an example of the kinds of exits that I think are possible if you follow this 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 kind of formula we lay out in the book. Okay, so you've got me curious. Obviously, being the owner of a consulting business, six times <laughs> would be really, you know, it would be phenomenal. What what separates those companies? What's what's the difference? So part of what I'm thinking about here is 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 you know Jim Collins back in 2001 released the book Good to Great, and you know in that process he highlighted the difference between good companies and great companies. When he, when he wrote his first book Built to Last, it was really about how some companies really um, were built and and um, lasted very, very long time. And, and I know that Good to Great was um, kind of the next step in that he took a look at what what helped companies that have lasted a long time be really above and beyond anything else. And, and with his research, what he noticed was great companies weren't just a little better than everybody else. They were a lot better. I mean, they, they really, really performed. So a lot of what you're talking about rings very, very true. And, um, and so as you look at these entrepreneurial companies, what are the things that really separate them? Yeah, I think you you hit the nail on the head. With, you know, in the comparison to Jim Collins, good to great. The you know, I think there are a, ver- a variety of sort of drivers of the value of your company. We touch on them in Value Builder. We talked about them in, in Built to Sell. Things like recurring revenue are important. How dependent the business is on the owner is really important. How overall dependent the business is on a single customer can drag down valuation. So there's all these factors, but part of it is, and I think a big part of it is the, the negotiation dance that goes on. I'll give you an example. So, a guy I interviewed for the book named Arik Levy, and he's had two exits and comparing and contrasting both of them is really interesting. The first was a company called Laundry Locker, where they basically, if you have a dry cleaner and you want to pick your laundry up after hours, you can drop it off in the locker. And he had one acquisition offer for that deal when he went to sell it, one acquire. And it was an okay exit. Ultimately, he signed a letter of intent, which is the first step, and then went through a period of due diligence. At the end of diligence, they retraded, meaning that offer dropped. The mm-hmm. acquirers, you know, dropped their, you know, what they were willing to pay for Eric's business. And that was kind of a bummer, but he decided to go forward with the deal anyways, only to find out at the end of the final throws of the deal that they couldn't come up with the money to buy the business. And they asked Arik, to finance the deal. Oh so gosh, they asked yeah. him to lend money. So it was, it was a double whammy, right? Lower price during the diligence and then ultimately a, a, a seller financing deal. And so that's what can happen when you've got what acquirers call a proprietary deal where you're just negotiating with one buyer effectively. Contrast that to Arik's second exit where he ran the process we talk about the book where you get multiple buyers to coalesce on looking at your business simultaneously. And he went through and started with a hundred or so potential acquirers. Ultimately, he was successful in getting five offers. Now, these five offers is not where the story ends. He had letters of intent, formal offers from each of these five offers. And they were plus or minus 10% comparing all, like sure. from the lowest to the highest. He then 
judiciously played one off the other. And again, we talk about a process to do that without having them fall away. Ultimately, he was able to get the offers up by 300%. In other words, three times the value that the original offers came in at, at the letter of intent stage. The difference, of course, is multiple bidders. Now, does that mean every one of your listeners is going to get, you know, triple the value of their company through multiple bidders? Clearly not. But it does, I think, serve to compare and contrast the, the, the science versus the art of this. What you're really looking for to maximize your value is multiple bidders. Yeah, you know, um, there was a, I did a brief stint after leaving the corporate world and, you know, was helping out some, um, doing a little bit of turnaround work in, in, uh, in the bankruptcy industry, you know, one of, one of the, the potential exits and reorg stra- strategies is what they call here in the U.S. a, a 363B sale. I, I think that's still going to be the terminology. I don't think federal laws change that much, but basically it's an auction of the bankrupt you know, products. So a lot of times, and people don't understand these nuances, but companies will go into a bankruptcy and um, the reorg plan is to really sell it through the bankruptcy. And sometimes companies in, in these situations, there's only one, there's only one bidder, in which case it's the lowest common denominator. And, and, you know, the banks might get some of their money out. Nobody else does. But really the goal always is, is, is multiple. They, they always say they want multiple horses in the race, right? They, they, want, they want people pushing and pressuring it up. And I also think about parallels like selling your house. You know, if you've got one person bidding on your house you're, and, and, and you're anxious to sell it, that's what you're going to get for it. If you're in a, a seller's market and you've got people bidding, I mean, right now in our area, we've got houses. And I think the same thing's happening in Toronto where you are, but we've got houses going above above value, above asking price, because you've got people that need a, need homes and they're willing to pay more and, and you get into these kind of auction situations. It's no different than with a company. Yeah, no. It, and we all learned it in grade eight economics class, right? The supply and demand, demand drives up the price. Where I think there is some nuance and again, some art associated with selling is you have to remember that the acquirer, the other side, wants a proprietary deal. They don't want competition, right? That's right. And so what they will do is pressure you, cons- you know, consistently pressure you to try to do a deal directly with them. And, and they're going to, they're going to use words like, can we, you know, I'd like to usurp or preempt the process. And that's code, you know, M&A lingo for, we want to deal with just negotiating with you because they know that once there are other players at the table, they are at a disadvantage. And so what I think the savvy business owner does is, is finds a way to subtly communicate to the acquirer that there are multiple bidders at the table without being overplaying their hand and without, you know, you know, saying, uh, being so boastful to say that there are dozens of other offers. I'll give you an example. Dan Martell built a, a great little technology company called Clarity FM. There were three natural acquirers yeah. for the business, all based in New York. And he knew he wanted to have comp- competition for the the company. He knew he wanted to get those three media outlets competing for him, but he didn't want to shove it in their face, right? He didn't want to be so bold as to say, I've got these three, you guys, you know, you know, fight over me kind of thing, which would in many cases turn away buyers, right? They would say, well, Dan, just go negotiate with the others. So what Martel did, which I think is a beautiful strategy is he hosted an event 
he hosted a cocktail party where he invited his clients, his suppliers, some customers, et cetera, some employees, and the CEOs of the three media companies. Now, what has he done in doing that? He's communicated in a very subtle way yes. that he knows the CEOs of the three media companies. And if they ever want to buy his business, they are likely to have to compete with the other two. Yeah. That was a brilliant strategy. It, 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 it really, really is. Um, you know, and, and oh, so another, I got, I got all these questions flying through my head. So apologies. But so one of the things I consider is, is, is um, maybe this sounds a bit jaded, but my experience has been that every time I have seen, whether it's a client or even a friend's company, I mean, I've seen a lot of people sell their companies. Every single time that they've only had one potential buyer, the offer letter always comes in great. As a matter of fact, I, 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 I can share a story. I had one guy, um, the offer letter, the initial offer letter was so high, but they asked for exclusive, right? Um, you know, in, it, do, through the due diligence period, came in so high and he's like, okay, yeah, you know, this is great. They're going to give me a great multiple. And I warned him, I said, every situation I've ever seen, the actual asking price goes down from that point forward. It never goes up. It always, it always goes down. And so the, the challenge I said is, what's your absolute minimum you're willing to take and walk away? And he told me the number. And it, was, it, was, it wasn't much below. I said, well, here's the discipline. I promise you they're going to come back and lower the price. No, no, no. These are good guys. No, they're going to. It was a roll-up. There were a lot of things going on. I said, they're, they're going to lower the price. Well, no, I don't think so. Well, listen, you got your minimum offer. I said, do not go below that. And lo and behold, three months into due diligence, they start kind of, you know, well, we found this and we found that, blah, 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 blah. The price goes lower and lower and lower and lower. And um, he even balked at the original hold and went a little bit lower. And I said, they're going to do it again. And they did. And I said, you got to hold the line. Now, fortunately, at the end of the day, I think he might say, unfortunately, but fortunately, um, they, they were doing a roll up. They ran out of cash. They were not able to close his deal. I think it would have been it would have ended up being disastrous for everybody involved because they wanted to give him less money. They wanted him to stay in the company, which I'm also a proponent of people not staying in after they sell. Um, but um, that, that I see that a lot. Do, do you see the same thing? Yeah, it's called retrading in the industry. And it is uh, one of the dirty little secrets of selling your company. And your friend's example, Chris, is not uncommon. There's what's called legitimate and illegitimate retrading. So legitimate retrading is where during diligence, your numbers start to trail off. That's legitimate you know, basis for uh, lowering the price. Illegitimate retrading is, I think, what you're describing, which is manufacturing things as part of the due diligence process to lower the price, justifications to lower the price. In fact, when there is no necessary, you know, objective reason to lower the price, the only reason is that you're personally committed, you're emotionally committed to selling the company at that point. And so there's a couple of things you can do to, 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 to protect yourself against retrading. The first of, first of all, is to follow the process in the book, which is to get multiple offers to coalesce around your deal simultaneously. That's going to make sure that the acquirer, whoever you choose and sign a letter of intent with, is going to know that if they start retrading, you're likely to go back to the original offers at the table. So that's number one. Number two is something I learned from Barry Hinckley, someone I interviewed in the, in the book. 
is something called a no retrading handshake. And what Hinckley recommended is that at the end of negotiation, when you've got the letter of intent just about signed, you go to the person who's most senior in the room and you look them in the eye and you say, I'll do this deal on one condition. What's that? No retrading. And by the no retrading handshake, you're communicating to the other side that you understand retrading is a thing and that you're not going to put up with it. That's, uh, that's excellent advice. And we're already to the end of our first segment. So uh, we're going to take a quick break, uh, let the radio station do their thing, and, um, and we will be back in just a couple minutes. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back with John Warlow. Thanks. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back with John Warlow. So, John, just just before we went to the break, we were talking a little bit about retrading, and we talked to you know we were talking about you know the the power of multiple um, bidders when when selling your company. How do you how do you find multiples? Sometimes you have somebody who comes to you. Um, maybe you weren't even thinking about selling your company, or, or you're you were thinking, well, maybe in a few years' time, and all of a sudden that buyer pops up. How do you handle a situation like that? Yeah. So, look, if if. Uh the first question, there's two questions embedded within that comment. The first is, you know, how do you find multiple bidders? And, and we both know Dan Sullivan in common. He's fond of saying a problem is a, think about problems as a who problem, not a how problem. And I think in this case, he's absolutely right. What he's referring to is that in many cases, the problems we think of that we have to solve as entrepreneurs, in fact, are better solved by an expert in whatever they do. And so in this case, I think the way to get multiple bidders is to ensure you hire a great M&A professional to represent you. So uh, in the case, for example, of Arik Levy, the example I shared before the break, the first time he sold his company, he did it on his own. It was a DIY project and he unfortunately had some negative circumstances or negative outcome. In the second case, he hired an M&A professional to represent him. And so I think that's an important 
element to, to ensuring you get multiple offers for your company. You know, if you get a, a, uh, uh, an unsolicited conversation or an unsolicited bid for your company, I think it's fine to have that lunch or entertain that phone call, uh, but know that it's a fishing expedition. What that acquirer is looking for is to gain information to their advantage. And so the, the more you talk, the less you will win that conversation, right? The opposite is true. If you get them talking, uh, I love to use questions that begin with the word what, because they act as an opener a creativity stimulant for the other side. So when you get an acquisition conversation started with somebody, if somebody approaches you, I would ask them lots of what questions. What triggered your outreach? What do you like about my company? What do you see as the strategic fit? What do you see is happening in our industry? What do you see are the big trends? Get them on the defensive answering the questions. What you really want to do is, is migrate that conversation into a competitive process. Because again, if, if you get suckered into a prop deal, uh, you'll, you'll, I think you'll end up selling your company for much less than it's worth. Yeah, you know, you you made, you reminded me of a time about um oh gosh, this was about seven eight years ago. I actually I had somebody approach me and said they wanted to buy, and I really wasn't ready to. And quite frankly, you know, as I looked at the structure of my organization, there was wasn't really a lot of value. There was some client work and everything else, but it wasn't it wasn't really built to sell. You know, um, to, to use your words, wasn't built to sell uh, to begin with, and and so it just never kind of went anywhere. But had I gone down that path. So, so asking the questions are really, really important. My guess is, is, is listening to what you're saying, I would probably then want to say, well, I hadn't considered, let me give it a little bit of time. And I have some professionals that, 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 that I work with that would probably want to be in on this conversation. And that would be the time to go out and find a professional because under no circumstance should we try to sell our company without professional help. Yeah. Yes. Uh, look, it's the difference between playing offense and defense. If you get an acquisition offer, if you get an approach from an acquirer, you're on the defense, right? So they're, 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 they're in offense mode. They're, they're approaching you. And while that can give you negotiating leverage, because you didn't go to them, if you pursue that conversation, you'll end up, I think, reacting to the whole process and unfortunately selling your business for a lot less than it's worth. Let me give you the opposite approach, which is to be very proactive in your approach to the process. So, Proactivity means something called pre-diligence. You've heard of due diligence, yes, right? So yes. due diligence, obviously what happens after you sign a letter of intent, they check out all the claims you made in the, in, in the process of selling your company. Pre-diligence is effectively doing all that work and anticipating all those questions in advance of a, an acquisition conversation. And you may say, and a lot of the entrepreneurs that are listening to this are probably thinking, what on earth would you do pre-diligence for? That sounds like, you know, putting yourself through the ringer for no reason. The reason you do pre-diligence is twofold. Number one, it's going to make the process much faster. Number two, it allows you to show that to the acquirer, that you're serious about the process. Let me give you an example. Michael Houlihan built a company called Barefoot Wine. Have you ever had Barefoot? They're, they're the guys who sell like inexpensive wine through Trader Joe's. Have you seen it before? Yeah, you know, I have seen it. I, I can't claim to have, have actually tried it though. You've got much higher taste in wine. No, I'm maybe, maybe a so little bit. Barefoot, Houlihan's a great, uh, you know, great entrepreneur and, and builds Barefoot Wine up into a real national brand when he and his wife decided to sell. 
And, you know, they were kind of looking out of the landscape of who they might sell to and up pops E&J Gallo, the largest winemaker in the United States. And they kind of rub their hands together and think, oh man, if we could sell to E&J Gallo, that would be the panacea. Now, what most entrepreneurs would do is call up E&J and have some sort of informal conversation with them to test their appetite for sale. Houlihan did not do that. He went through the due diligence and pre-diligence process. He put together binders and binders and binders of information. Every vendor, every distributor, every you know sales information that you could possibly imagine. So that when he approached E&J Gallo, he was looking for two reactions. Number one, man, these guys are professional. This is going to be an easy process to buy this company. But the second and the hidden reason he created the binders, the pre-diligence binders, is to subtly communicate to the E&J Gallo that if they didn't acquire Barefoot, E&J's biggest competitor would likely buy them because they were clearly, in Houlihan's words, ready for the dance. Yeah. They were, you know, they were looking for a dance partner. And, and if they weren't going to bite, it was very likely that they would lose out on the opportunity to their biggest club, you know, rival. Oh, that's what, what a, what a great story. So pre-diligence, you know, I, I actually even go earlier than that in my mind. So, you know, I think about, there was a, a, a company that, um, that I worked with for, for a few years, we got hired in and, and, um, to work with them on, you know, better execution. And one of the first things that I will ask is what's the long-term plan? Is there an exit? What, you know, what's going on in this particular case? Um, it was, uh, it was an ESOP. It, the, the ownership or the people who started it were looking for an exit, potentially a sale a couple of years down the road. And, and, um, and what was really interesting is we had two clients at that time, this one that was coming in and we had an, we had another one that had told one of the consultants in my group that they had decided to go down the path of selling their company. And, it's almost like the tale of two companies if, if I want to look at it. And so the, the new company coming in, the first bit of advice that I gave them, you know, working with us is that as we look at their strategies, as we look at the long-term plan, even though they had a three-year exit, we talked about a 10-year goal. And the philosophy I gave them, I said, look, I said, we want to operate your company as though there's never going to be a sale, as though you have to continue feeding these people. You, you have to continue feeding yourself and you have to move this organization forward as best as possible for your investors, et cetera, that, that, that you have to go forward with that, that philosophy. The other company, on the other hand, they, they thought they knew better. Um, we actually ended up walking away from this company uh, because they were going against our advice. But what they started doing is they started cutting things, you know, because they looked at a, a due diligence checklist that somebody generated for them. And they started cutting things so that they can look like they had more profits to get a better multiple. And the things that they were cutting were things that, that you know, ultimately affected their performance, which ended up at the end, affecting their, their multiple. I mean, you can't cut marketing, you can't cut training, I, you know, but, you know, they think that, well, we do that, it's going to make our numbers look better. Nobody's going to notice that sort of thing. But these people are pretty darn smart. You know, as, as you listen to this story, what are your thoughts as far as posturing and those kind of things? I mean, you know, how would you advise a company and what are the downfalls of, of maybe trying to make some of those transparent cuts? Well, so many, so many experiences in that story that you've shared. I think uh, the first is that 
you're absolutely right to have a 10 year goal, even if you have a three year plan to exit, because for your acquirer, they are going to be towing the starting line of their race. So if you were to exit after three years, you've got to be able to communicate a vision into the future where the business is going to continue to grow and that they're going to be uh, you know, attracted to that. I'm reminded of a company that did not do that. They, they built a, a frozen yogurt company and the founder had always wanted to have retail stores. It was kind of a, in his own admission, a little bit of a vanity play. He wanted to be able to walk down Main Street and see his retail stores. And anyway, he built this frozen yogurt brand. He got it in Kroger's and some of the big grocery store retailers, but he still had this desire to have this retail store. So he ultimately built a network. I think if, if memory serves, it was about 45 or 50 retail stores where they sold, or excuse me, uh, retail locations where people could walk in off main street and buy a frozen yogurt. So he fulfilled that kind of vision that he had of, of, of having that. But what he didn't realize was that building a company with all that distribution, i.e. retail distribution through Kroger's and his own direct channel to consumers was likely going to, in fact, undermine the value of his business in the eyes of an acquirer because the natural acquirer for his business was someone who wanted a consumer packaged goods product, someone who wanted Mm -hmm. the branded product, not a group of retail stores that had all the new headaches associated with having retail stores. Ultimately, he wasn't able to sell the company. Long story short, months later, he took a lowball offer and moments after they closed on the lowball offer, the acquirer jettisoned all the retail stores, right? Because they were like, all we want is the distribution of the product in Kroger. I don't want all these, you know, hourly employees and so forth. And so it was a good lesson for him and what acquires value. So we, we, we talk a lot about a 10 year vision like you um, and, and, and have people think about how the decisions they make today will be viewed through the lens of an acquirer, like how an acquirer will, will view the decisions you're making. I think that's one of the most important sort of things people can do uh, as they build out their 10 year vision. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's so very very important. It is about value, and I, I mean, I, I think as a business owner, you know, when when I put that hat on, I even look at my own business or any of the businesses we consult with. Is you know, it's always how is every decision building value for your company? Um, we were just talking the other day, so so we follow one of the, the the Jim Collins concepts that we help is is Jim Collins's Hedgehog concept. And the hedgehog is a decision filter. It's a combination of what, um, you know, what are you truly passionate about? You know, what can you be best in the world at? And what drives your economic engine? And, and when you ask, answer those questions, now you look at an opportunity, look at things that you do in your business and say, does that enhance it or does it hurt it? And don't ever do anything that hurts it. It's amazing how often I'll see companies and leadership pursue an idea that maybe on the surface looks logical, but really isn't. You know, I have to laugh back at my days in Big Boy. We were a very vertical integrated organization. We had our own food manufacturing where our signature items were all made. And that was still a good decision for us. And that was a business that we were able to leverage and grow. Um, but outside of that, we had our own distribution company, you know, to ship. We had our own carpentry shop that made tables and all those things. And, and I can remember once sitting across from, you know, our, um, our banker. And we were talking about the ratios and, you know, the, the loan was resetting. And, and he actually made a comment. And this was, 
both tongue in cheek and a slap in the face. He said, you know, we judge, we really, you're unique. We don't judge your company on how much money you make. We judge you on how many losing operations you can support. (laughs) That's not a good sign. No, not a good sign. And, but, but the point being is, is, is don't do things that are going to be detractors to your value, you know, and, 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 and think about that. That's such a good point. And, and I, I mean, I'll show you a real life example of this that, that, I, that I wrote about. The, the, the example is, comes from a company called Breedlove and Associates. They built, uh, Stephanie Breedlove is the founder. She built a payroll company for parents who have a nanny to pay. And she built this company up and it was very early in her life cycle where she just had one employee. I think she had about $300,000 of annual revenue when she was kind of trying to figure out how to grow. And she had two choices. One was to go find more parents who have a nanny and therefore need payroll for that nanny. The other was to go find more services that she could sell the parents she'd already sold. And everyone and their brother would tell breed love. Every marketing consultant, every consultant under the sun would say, oh, cross-selling your customers is 10 times easier than finding a new customer. You should cross-sell them snow removal services and meal delivery services and all the other stuff that busy parents need. Yeah, Breed love didn't do that. She stuck to her hedgehog. Going back to your hedgehog point, mm-hmm. she focused on just doing payroll for parents who have nannies to pay. 25 years later, she built this company up, still just doing payroll for parents who have a nanny to $9 million in revenue, 10,000 customers. She at the time went out and approached care.com, which is like the Angie's list of care providers. Plug in your zip code and they'll give you babysitters that are five-star rated in your local area. Care.com had 7 million subscribers. They looked at Breedlove's custom company and said, wow, our 7 million subscribers all have nannies. They all have babysitters. They likely need payroll. Why don't we buy Breedlove? Long story short, they made an acquisition offer of $40 million for Breedlove's $9 million company. Breedlove, to her credit, went back and said, you're undervaluing my business. Imagine that, undervaluing yeah. a $9 million business with a $40 million acquisition offer. She goes back and says, but... Here's the thing. If 1% of your 7 million subscribers buy my service, that's 70,000 customers. We're just 10,000 customers. Long story short, Breedlove agreed to an acquisition of $54 million for $9 million business. It would never have happened had she not stuck to her headshot concept. Wow. That's, again, just just a great emphasis on the point. And uh, we're actually to the end of our next segment. So let's uh, let's take a little break. Um, we will be back in just a minute with John Warlow. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience meeting organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. True results happen where culture meets execution. 
The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of The Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back one last time with John Warlow. So, John, um, you know, we were just talking about hedgehog and, and how important it is to, to stick to what you do best, but that's not certainly the only thing you do to drive value. So it, you know, for anybody who's considering or even not necessarily considering today selling, I mean, it's always an option. Uh, what are the things, though, that you should be considering? You know, what, what are the things that are the real value drivers? What do we have to keep out in front of us? Yeah, I mean, we touched on one earlier with the story of Greg Alexander and the $30 million services company that sold for $162 million. What he did really, really well was ensure that the business could thrive without him personally doing the work. So he got so good at letting others do the work that when it came to selling his company, he didn't get involved in the sales process at all. He didn't actually get in to the management meetings. And if believe it or not, he sold his $162 million company without ever meeting the buyer. Imagine it's staggering to, to, to think that you could get your business to be that independent of you. So that's w- one of the big kind of tactical things you can do to make your business more valuable. So let me, second, let me ask you, let me, sorry, yeah, sorry go ahead. let me ask you a question right on that point. Sure. Uh, you know, sometimes we got some egos involved here. Sometimes we like to be the person in charge. Sometimes we like, like to be the answer person. H- how does a leader get beyond that and really you know, develop the skills and, and really even the mentality to say, let me get this business to where they, where they just don't need me. Yeah. I found that that, that desire to be the front person, to be the central point of all knowledge and so forth, it is something that a lot of owners have to get over. And it's one thing that, that I, I got over, uh, in, in a very harsh way. I remember I was invited to, uh, uh, something called the birthing of giants, which has been rebranded recently called the entrepreneurs master's program, but it was a, a program at MIT. And the executive education uh, facility had 60 entrepreneurs that were invited to this thing. And it was some of the most amazing speakers. I got to hear from Pat Lynchoni and Jack Stack and all these great people. In walks a recently exited entrepreneur, a guy named Stephen Watkins. And I, and I, and I almost missed the session because I was sort of tired of the you know, the rags to riches story. I'd sort of, I was, I was done with that, but I was convinced to go to the sessions. So I sat there and he walks in and says, okay, guys, who, uh, who's involved in doing the selling for your products or services? And like everybody's hand went up, right? All 60 of us in the room, we kind of proudly raised their hand and said, yeah, I'm, you know, customers love me. I'm the, I'm the, you know, I'm the, I'm the big rainmaker for my company, et cetera. And he said, all right, here's the thing. You all have the right skills, you're selling the wrong product. Wow. 
you have all of the sales and marketing savvy to build a valuable company, you should be investing that energy and those resources in building the value of your company, not serving any individual customer. Hire salespeople to sell your product. You invest those resources in building the value of your company because you get a multiple for every time you make a sale, you make a, you make a sale. Every time you sell your company, you get a multiple many, 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 many times over on that value. And I've always remembered that story when I'm tempted to sort of be the front guy. And I think for many of us, we, we, we need to inject that same degree of, of, of energy into building our company as opposed to serving customers. Yes. There's a big difference between those two. There is, you know, I, I, I can't help but think. So when Gary V, um, you know, who's obviously become an influencer um, over the last few years, especially in the business world, when he first started doing his podcast, I remember listening, I think it was the very first one or one of them. And I, I forget who he was consulting with. Um, and what he was doing is, you know, he was podcasting, um, or actually I think they were YouTube videos, you know, him co- coaching and consulting clients. And the client was um, really upset that they were training these people and then they would leave and go work somewhere else. And, and what Gary said is, well, you know, let's talk about the real value. Who, you know, who, who's trying to be the hero? Are you trying to be the hero or are you trying to make them the hero? If you make them the hero, some will stay, some will leave, but they'll always talk well of you and that'll always help you grow. And, and it's, a, it's a whole different shift of mentality of getting away from, you know, you and your ego uh, being at the top to saying, let's make the other people the heroes. Let's make let's make the people that work for us the heroes. Um, and I think even Dan Sullivan, you know, you mentioned Dan's name a little while ago. Even he, um, I think he's got a recent book on, you know, who do you want to be the hero or something like that. I can't remember the title of it, but um, who do you want to be a hero for? Yes, probably you, something yeah, to that effect. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but I think part of it is too is is understanding, you know, uh, who who in an organization and what are you doing for these people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, that's, that's probably step one of building a more valuable company, sure. something we haven't talked a lot about, but I think is the second step or yeah. a second ingredient to the value of your business is going to be recurring revenue, right? So recurring revenue is, you know, we think of it, I'm sure when you hear those words, you, you automatically go to a software company, right? A SaaS or software as a service company, maybe a media company, but The most important thing I think virtually every business needs to think about is how do they create recurring revenue that, that kind of that juicy annuity stream that comes almost automatically. Um, I'm reminded of a story that I wrote about in, in in fact, the book, The Automatic Customer, about a company called H. Bloom. So they were in the business of selling flowers, right? So flowers is about as transactional as you can possibly imagine, right? So the only time we ever buy flowers is Mother's Day and Valentine's Day. Uh, Maybe our wedding anniversary, maybe, right? Or when you've done something really bad. Chris, this never happens to you, right? No, of course not. Never. So... It's a very lumpy business. It's very seasonal. Cash is terrible because you've got to pay for the flowers and then they start dying the moment, you know, the farmer cuts it off the, the stem. And so you end up throwing out a bunch of, uh, of inventory, something like 60% of all inventory gets thrown out every single month by oh a flower store because it's wow. just, they buy too much, right? Yeah. So it's a terrible business. Along come these two guys, Sonu Panda and Brian Burkhart, New York guys. And they're like, we want to build a, a, a flower company, but we want to build it based on subscription. So they asked themselves who buys flowers on a recurring basis. 
And they found out that there's this very small but lucrative segment of the flowering bar, bar, buying population, which are hotels. Hmm. Prestigious, the Ritz-Carlton and, and, and very fancy hotels will put a fresh cut bouquet of flowers on the reception table in order to look all fancy, right? Right. And Burkhart and Panda realized that if they could sell a subscription to flowers, they would even out the typical buying cycle. Average lifetime value of an H. Bloom subscriber, their company, is more than $4,500. They make one sale, and it's the sale that keeps on giving because they get $4,500 worth of revenue. And you think, wow, that's incredible for the value of their business. It helps them predict their, their, the needs for their flowers because they only fulfill the flowers that they, they only buy the, the number of flowers they need to fulfill their subscriptions. Sure. So their spoilage rate compared to 60% in the, in, in the industry is less than 2%. That's Think about how much incredible. more valuable wow. that business is than yeah. a typical flower store. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's the, what an incredible way of looking at it. Yeah, we, we all too often look at recurring revenue as, you know, what kind of online model, you know, does there have to be an app, any, any of those kind of things. But there, there are certainly lots of formulas that can work. Yeah, I mean, like my kid, my kid plays guitar. Yeah. And, and he, you know, we have a, a teacher for once a week who gives him a lesson. And forever, my wife and I used to struggle to, to, because we, we, like the morning of the lesson, we would go back and forth and say, hey, do you have some cash for, and, and, oh no, I don't have any, I'll have to go to the bank. Because uh, none of us carried cash. And yet we had to pay this guitar teacher who on a regular basis asked us to pay him in cash. And I just, it's a very trivial, silly, very, a small example, but how much simpler would it have been for my wife and I had the guitar teacher just said, don't worry about it. We'll do a lesson once a week. And once a week, I'll just ding your credit card for the lesson. My wife and I would have been happy. We wouldn't have had to fight over who's going to get the cash or the bank machine to, you know, to pay the <laughs> guitar teacher. And it would have been perfect for him because he would have guaranteed that automatic revenue. Um, so it, it can work for the, the smallest of businesses right up to some of the largest. Yeah, it just takes us being a little more creative to figure out what that is. Is there a third step? So, so we, we talk about the owner getting out of the business. Two is, is recurring revenue. How about a third? Yeah, I mean, we've already spoken before the break about one of the keys, which is what we call monopoly control, which you're referring to as the hedgehog concept, but essentially being the best at one thing. The fourth kind of driver of value. And we talk about the eight key drivers, but the fourth one is what we call the Switzerland structure. It's name comes from the country of Switzerland, which as you know, is sort of a, a butt of a lot of jokes because they remain independent of everything. Like I'm, I'm going to be Switzerland on this one, right? It's the way that you can not pick sides on an argument. Same thing is true of the Switzerland, the, the country of Switzerland, right? They didn't join the world wars. They didn't, they don't join the, you know, the, they didn't, uh, they don't use the Euro currency. I mean, they're, they're very independent, right? And so we use that name to define your company's dependence on a single customer, supplier, um, or just have, I'm sorry, there was a noise outside my office, customer, supplier, or employee. And so those are the three kind of legs of the Switzerland structure stool, if you will. And the supplier one is one that a lot of people have heard, oh, I can't be too dependent on a, on a single customer. Oh, I know I can't be too dependent on a single employee, but the supplier one is one that doesn't always 
uh, it often gets forgotten. I'm reminded of a, of a, of a guy I interviewed for built cell radio where he built up a nice $26 million company, but all of his source or supply was coming from Avaya. They installed phone systems. And so there's lots of big phone system companies. There's Avaya, there's, there's, uh, there's Cisco and there's others, but 93% of his, of his revenue was reselling Avaya gear. And so when he went to sell this $26 million company, he was expecting of offers of like, you know, seven, eight, nine times earnings, which is kind of what, what companies of that size often trade for. And he was surprised that the only offer he could get was for 3.2 times earnings, most of which was on an earn out where he would only achieve that multiple had he been uh, hit, hit goals in the future. And I asked him like, how, why were you, you discounted to such extent? Why did you not get the value you're hoping for? And he said, well, the acquirers looked at Avaya as a problem. They said, well, what if Avaya changes its business model? What if they change their payment terms? What if they start charging more or hire salespeople, do all sorts of other things that they might do in order to undermine my business model? And so ultimately he sold this company for a lot less than it would have been worth had he diversified his supplier list. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Number five, if you don't mind, I want to tackle one or two more before we run out of time. I'm, I'm really picking your brains on this one. I mean, another one that we look at a lot is the growth potential of your company. So growth potential is, is, is how much you could effectively grow the business. Because for a lot of owners, uh, we think about, you know, selling our business at the top, right? Like that's the, the classic sort of, I'll say to an owner, you know, like, when are you going to sell this thing? And he's like, oh, I've got two or three more years before we really reach the, you know, the reach the top. And, and, and I always sort of chuckle at that because, you know, an acquirer wants to know that there's lots of field left to plow. Mm-hmm. right? They don't want you to harvest everything. They want to know that there's lots of field left to plow. I'm reminded of the story of, of Rand Fishkin. Rand's a guy I wrote about in the book. He's, he was on the podcast. He built a company called SEO Moss, $5 million business doing SEO. It's a software company doing mm-hmm. SEO and search engine optimization. And along comes an acquirer, HubSpot. Brian Halligan, co-founder oh, yeah. of, of HubSpot, yeah. approaches Rand and says, look, I want to buy your business, $5 million business, and we're willing to pay four times your revenue. So four times five is it's 20 million bucks. I think actually the offer was closer to 25 million when he included some of the HubSpot stock he was willing to give. Yeah. So Rand said, well, that's a really generous offer. But in his mind, he was going from five to 10, mm-hmm. right? So he was expecting to go... And so Fishkin said, no, I think it should be 40. I think it should be four times my future revenue, 40. And Halligan says, well, we can't do that. And, and, and left the negotiation. Rand picked up him, himself from the floor and said, okay, well, that's fine. We're going to go uh, build out the business in another way and brought in venture capital. The venture capitalists, when they invest in a company, use preferred shares, which means they get their money out and usually a premium before you as the founder does. So they go out and invest a bunch of, invest a bunch of different products, none of which they're really differentiated in. Unfortunately, most of them fail. Ran slips into a, into a period of depression where he actually gets removed from the CEO spot in his company and becomes a minority shareholder in a business that he doesn't actually control anymore. And I asked Rand on the show, I said, like, you know, like, what's that stake in Ma's worth now? Like, he still had a few shares. And, I, and he said, it's probably not worth anything. 
I said, what do you mean it's not worth anything? He said, well, because of the way the VCs invest using preferred shares, they, they've held it long enough that they're, they're going to get their preferred return, which is effectively going to wash me out. Hmm. And I said, what would that offer be worth today because of the appreciation of HubSpot stock? I mean, it's gone, it's gone through the roof. And he said, today it would be worth close to $200 million. <laughs> And I, and I share oh. that story because one of the common, I think, mistakes we make as entrepreneurs is we ride it over the top. We always go uh, and, and, and envision selling at the very peak of the roller coaster, right? Yeah. Where we, we have to remember is that your acquirer needs to know there's lots of growth left in your company. And, uh, and that's, uh, it's, that's why one of the reasons it's better to sell much earlier than you feel is natural. That is what a, what an excellent point, and appreciate that. We are, um, I mean, unfortunately, we're we're kind of now uh, getting to the end of our time here. Uh, before we wrap, though, um, you you have you've launched a, a website. Um, actually, it's I, I maybe describe it as a web based product. You have this thing called uh, Value Builder, if I if I recall the name, that um, is pretty powerful and can help a company think through some of this. Uh, can you give us just thirty seconds on that? Yeah, we have a system that is designed to help you improve the value of your company. When people start with us, their average score out of 100 is 59. Those people are getting offers of 3.5 times pre-tax profit. There's a 12-step system we take people through to improve the value of their business. At the end of that, if you get a score up to 90 out of a possible 100, those businesses are trading at 7.1 times pre-tax profit. Wow. So we license that to professional advisors, consulting firms, cons- uh, you know, coaching firms all around the world. And uh, it's a system that works really well for, uh, for both the business owner and the advisors who, uh, who, uh, who use it. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you. And thank you for your time today. Uh, you know, folks, if, if, if you're interested in more, we've got three books and three great books. Um, but the, the most recent one is the art of selling your business, the art of selling your business. Uh, give it a try. Check it out. Uh, John, uh, Warlow. John, um, spell your last name for everybody. It's two, two R's, two L's. <laughs> yeah, it's a mouthful. W A double R I double L O so if you're looking it up on Amazon or, or somewhere else, that's where you'll find him. Um, it's probably easier just to go to builttosell.com. It's a whole lot easier to spell. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So builttosell.com. Uh, check his book out. If, if, if Whether you've considered selling your company or you just want to drive some value, I, I think it's a great great resource. Thanks again for, for being on with me today. Appreciate it. Um, to any of the listeners, if you want to track John down, um, you know, let me know. You can track me down through the radio station and, and I'll put you in touch with his people. Um, and you're always welcome to find me uh, through the Voice America website or through uh, my site, chriseliasauthor.com. And uh, until next week, um, just John, thanks again for being with us. Thank you, Chris. And uh, everybody else, we'll look forward to having you on the show soon. Take care. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week. 